Good evening. Uh, my name is Andrew Murray, and I'm a reader in the law department here at the LSE with special interests in IT and cyber law. And I'm here tonight to welcome you to the second, or perhaps third, I'm never sure how we count it, in our lecture series, Law and Other Things. This lecture series has been created to introduce students to the variety of uses to which a law degree may be put. We have created this lecture series in recognition of the fact that we in the law department usually organize our public lectures on the assumption we're catering for students who are settled on becoming lawyers. Of course, not all law students do progress to a legal career. So this year we've decided to do things slightly differently. We're inviting a number of public figures who were once lawyers or were once law students to come and speak about what led them away from the practice of law and how, if at all, their experience of studying, teaching or practicing law has been valuable to them in their career choice. There will be an opportunity at the end of this lecture to ask questions, so can I ask members of the audience not to interrupt tonight's speaker during his lecture. Um, I'm informed by the school I have to tell you that tonight's lecture will be recorded and that it's hoped that this will be made available later online as a podcast. But I'm further advised by the school that I have to say hoped, because we can never be certain that the technology will function correctly, and something might be of particular resonance to tonight's speaker. <clears throat> so that brings me to the main event, which is to introduce tonight's speaker. Um, tonight we've got someone who has put his law training to the best of uses. Professor Richard Suskind is that rarest of lawyers. He's one who has turned his analytical focus onto the legal profession itself. Too often lawyers are criticised for their insular views of the profession of law. We teach law to undergraduate students in law schools which often inhabit separate buildings to the rest of the university, thankfully something we at the LSE are not guilty of. The LLB programme is by nature of being a qualifying degree one which focuses upon courses offered by the law department with less scope for interdisciplinary study. As a result, it's possible for an LLB student to graduate having only ever taken courses offered by their home department. For this reason, law students, like medical students, are often viewed by other undergraduates as insular and separate. After graduation, a large number of law students head directly to the protective arms of the legal profession. Many will practice at the bar, a process which will see them join the professional equivalent of a law school in Inns of Court, with its walled environment, private gardens and cafeteria refectories all in, yet somehow separate from the city which surrounds it. Some lawyers, of course, go on to do other things. Many enter politics, some enter the media. Tonight's speaker, although not a journalist, he was very careful to say to me, is a regular columnist for The Times. Some join civil society and public interest groups and a few escape the rigorous values of fact-checking instilled by an LLB degree to engage in truly artistic endeavours such as the DJ Judge Jules who is an LSE law graduate or our previous speaker in the Law and Other Things series, novelist Hilary Mantel. Fewer still turn their legal training onto the profession in which they may have been assumed they were destined to apply their trade. Richard Suskind is therefore uniquely positioned to deliver tonight's lecture. Richard Suskind was born in Paisley, Renfrewshire, in March 1961 
Many in the audience will know Paisley best as the origin of the famous Paisley pattern, or perhaps if, like me, you follow Scottish football, the home of St Mirren Football Club. For Richard, I suspect the geography of Paisley was to have an effect on his early life, as situated as it is, only seven miles from the city centre of Glasgow, Paisley finds it difficult to exert independence from its larger neighbour. Richard, therefore, followed the pattern of education one would expect of an intelligent, independent Glaswegian. He attended Hutchison Grammar School and from there went on to the law faculty at Glasgow University for his formal, for which read, professional training. In 1982, he graduated LLB with first class honours. In 1983, he took the Scottish Diploma in Legal Practice, which is the first stage to entering the legal profession in Scotland. He looked like the perfect young Glasgow professional on his career path. But then Richard did something unusual. He didn't enter the profession. Instead, he took a place at Balliol College to undertake a defil in computers and law. This decision was no doubt strongly influenced by his award of a Snell Exhibition Scholarship, placing Professor Suskind in an illustrious group, including Archibald Campbell Tate, Archbishop of Canterbury from 1868 to 1882, mathematician James Stirling, legal theorist Professor Sir Neil McCormack, and economist Adam Smith. The young Richard Suskind therefore followed in the footsteps of great men, but his application was unique. In taking a defil in computers and law at a time when computers were still relatively rare in the workplace, he placed himself at the forefront of a new discipline. After graduating defil in 1986, Richard Suskind has applied his skills to a number of fields. He worked as head of expert systems for accountancy firm Ernst & Young for three years, before spending eight years in a number of senior positions with specialist IT law firm Masons. It's for his work outside of practice, though, that he's best known, and of course, this work is the reason we invite him here tonight. He has been since 1990 a member of the Lord Chancellor's Information Technology and the Courts Committee. During this time, he's been intimately involved in a number of projects to bring the work of the English courts into the 21st century, including working as the IT consultant to Lord Wolfe's Access to Justice Inquiry, and since 1998, Richard has been the IT advisor to the Lord Chief Justice. For his role in renewing the public legal establishment, he was awarded an OBE in the Millennium New Year's Honours List for services to IT in the law and the administration of justice. He is, though, foremost a man of the passion to communicate his subject to a wider audience. This has led to him working as a regular columnist for The Times since 1999, and from 2000 to 2004 he was Gresham Professor of Law, a position which saw him give free public lectures in the City of London. Today he retains an honorary chair at Gresham, the first person to have been awarded such an honour. He is also a visiting professor at Strathclyde University and was recently appointed visiting professor in Internet Studies at the Oxford Internet Institute. He's most famous, though, as the author of a series of thought-provoking books on the future of law and the legal profession. This series of four books, published since 1996, The Future of Law, Transforming the Law, The Suskind Interviews, Legal Experts in Changing Times, and now The End of Lawyers, have all been bestsellers and have been required lawyers and the profession as a whole to reconsider their role in the future environment, where one may as easily Google for the answer to the question, what happens if I die without a will, as to receive legal advice on the subject. His contributions have been groundbreaking. As the first person to look at legal services as a consumer item rather than as a service item, he introduced the client service chain for legal services and the grid as a model to introduce and explain the relationship between various fundamental concepts including knowledge management, information systems, information technology and e-commerce. Both these concepts are now used by law firms across the world as a tool to support the development of IT strategy. His latest book, The End of Lawyers, predicts a significant new pressure on the legal marketplace and, in turn, great change in the world of legal services. Here he sets a new challenge for all lawyers. 
He urges them to ask themselves what elements of their current workload could be undertaken more quickly, more cheaply, more efficiently, or to a higher quality using different and new methods of working. He argues that the market is unlikely to tolerate expensive lawyers for tasks that can be better discharged with support of modern systems and techniques. He claims that the legal profession will be driven by two forces in the coming decade, by a market pull towards commoditization of legal services and by the pervasive development and uptake of new and disruptive legal technologies. As the dust jacket makes clear, traditional lawyers may see their jobs being eroded or even displaced, but at the same time for entrepreneurial lawyers he foresees quite a different law emerging, one that may be highly rewarding and very different from those of today. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Professor Richard Suskind. Thank you very much for that, that very full introduction. Uh, I did notice that two people walked out during the introduction. Even by my standards, that's unusual. You usually have to, it's usually when I start speaking that people leave the room and, in fact, ask for the doors to be locked under normal circumstances. I was almost late for this lecture, which brought to mind one of my favorite stories in life, which is about Professor Albert Einstein, the great scientist, who apparently many years ago gave a fantastic lecture tour in England, and he got very friendly with the chauffeur who used to drive him to and from the various lecture halls at which he was speaking. And one day, the chauffeur's driving along and looks in his, his, his mirror and says, Professor Einstein, you really are a remarkable man. What I find amazing is not simply the sophistication of our theories, and clearly they are very complex, but it's your ability to break these theories down into simple, straightforward propositions. That's what I find really amazing. In fact, so clear are you, and so many times have I heard you, that I think I myself could give one of your talks. And Einstein's sitting in the back of the car and he said, well, it's funny you should say that because I'm getting rather bored of giving the same talk again and again. So why don't we try an experiment? Why don't we re reverse roles just before we arrive at the lecture theatre? I'll climb out of my clothes and get into your chauffeur's uniform and I'll stand at the back of the hall as you would normally do and you can get into my clothes and give the talk at the front. What do you think? The chauffeur thinks this is a fantastic idea. They duly arrive at the lecture theatre. Einstein gets out of his clothes, climbs into the chauffeur's uniform, positions himself at the back of the hall, as the chauffeur would normally have done, and the chauffeur at the front gives Einstein's talk. It's fantastic. The crowds are going wild. But, of course, what they hadn't banked on was question time. And this very eminent physicist stands up and asks this impossibly difficult question. The chauffeur's eyes glaze over, but then they light up. He said, that question's so easy, I'm going to ask my chauffeur at the back of the hall to answer it. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, any difficult questions later on, and I'll put back to the chauffeurs amongst you. I have, I hope, about 45, 50 minutes to change your view of where the legal profession is going. It's meant to be discourteous to disagree with an introduction that's made to a speaker. But the title of the book is The End of Lawyers? Question mark, not The End of Lawyers. It's not a statement or a prediction. It's an investigation into what future lawyers might have in our fantastically and rapidly changing world. And what I argue is that there are a whole bundle of forces at play which are going to change the way that lawyers need to work in the legal profession functions in society. And I want to give you a flavor of this line of argument today by looking really at six different topics. First of all, the future. It's really a question of mindset. How should you be when you're thinking about the future? Then talk about the legal market and what the current state of that market is. Talk a little bit about commoditization. It's a vile word, but it's a vital concept. And it applies, I think, very strongly to the legal world. Talk then about technology, its growth generally and its implications more particularly for the legal profession suggesting that the shape of legal businesses must change in the future, and finally ask the question, what is the future for lawyers in this rapidly changing environment? So as for the future, 
One of my, I suppose my second favorite story in life is about Black & Decker. And apparently Black & Decker, when they recruit new executives, they take them off in a room. And um, I suspect it's not a room nearly as pleasant as this, but they put up a slide exactly like the slide before you and say, this is what we sell, isn't it? Gleaming power drill. The assembled new executives say, of course this is what we sell. We're Black & Decker. We're leading manufacturers of power tools. The trainers with some satisfaction say, this is not what we sell. Because that's not really what our customers want. This is what our customers want. And it's your job to find ever more creative, imaginative, and competitive ways of giving our customers what they want. And I think there's a great lesson here for lawyers. Because when most lawyers are thinking ahead, they tend to be a power drill mentality. They tend to think, what do we do today? That's one-to-one -one consultative advisory service delivered usually on an hourly billing basis. And how can we improve upon that? How can we make it a bit cheaper or quicker or better? That's lawyers thinking of the future. Not often enough, I argue, do lawyers take the step back and say, what's the hole in the wall in our world? Why is it that clients pay good money for lawyer services? What value is it that lawyers bring to the community and to the business world? That's a question I've been asking for about 15 years now. And I've heard two responses that I think are quite important. The first came indirectly from KPMG's website. And I happened upon their mission statement, which, to paraphrase, ran something like this. We exist to turn our knowledge into value for the benefit of our clients. We exist to turn our knowledge into value for the benefit of our clients. Isn't that a wonderful way of capturing what any professional advisor does? They have knowledge, they have expertise, they have insight, they have ideas, they have experience that they apply in the particular circumstances of their clients. Notice KPMG did not say we exist to provide one-to-one -one consultative advisory service on an hourly billing basis. They don't talk about how they deliver what is of key value, which is their knowledge and experience. And I conclude from this that what's absolutely central, what's pivotal to legal service is our knowledge as, as lawyers. And people say, well, of course, that's obvious. But actually, lawyers don't really reflect that in their daily working practice. There's a discipline called knowledge management, how it is that an organization can capture nurture, share, reuse its collective knowledge and experience. There's not a law firm in the world that's done a good job of that yet. And so it's simply, I think, empty to say, yes, we're in the knowledge business if you're not following through. So my point is, first of all, we have to rethink very carefully how it is we use that resource, our knowledge, how it is we harness that knowledge and resource. But there's a second point here. Clients, if they can have access to that knowledge, if they can tap into that knowledge in different ways, and do so in a way that's less costly or less time-consuming or less forbidding, they will go for that. All the research into clients suggests that. Clients don't come to lawyers because they love meeting with lawyers or they like the way lawyers work. It's to tap into their knowledge and experience. So my preoccupation in life is to think, how can we find new ways of allowing the citizen, the commercial client, to tap into the knowledge and expertise of lawyers? So have that thought floating around. Well, I suggest you what the second hole in the wall might be in the legal world. And this answer actually comes from clients. I interview for a number of research projects, general counsel. They're the top lawyers within companies, company lawyers. And what they say to me again and again is they like their law firms. They say they do a good job, but they're too reactive. Too reactive. They simply respond to problems we give to them. They're not proactive enough. They don't, they say to me, anticipate our needs. We don't want dispute resolution. Clients tell me, we want dispute avoidance. We don't want legal problem solving. 
We want legal risk management. Or to put it graphically, what clients tell me they want is a fence at the top of the cliff rather than an ambulance at the bottom. And yet when most lawyers are thinking about the future of legal services, they're looking at the bottom of the cliff. They're thinking, how can we get that ambulance to the scene of the problem that bit quicker? Or how can we equip that ambulance that bit better? But clients are saying they don't want that. I've yet to meet a sane person who would prefer a good problem well resolved to not having a problem at all. Most of us in our normal lives would like to avoid problems. And yet lawyers who have the expertise to help clients avoid the pitfalls tend to focus on providing service once the damage is done. And it's a cause of immense frustration in the client community. So I'm seeing two things constitute or I think qualify as holes in the wall in the legal world. The first is our knowledge and expertise as lawyers is what clients want to tap into. And the second is our insight and our help in helping them avoid or at least identify and manage legal risks. Another thing by way of the future, I'll talk a lot about technology today, automation and innovation. Vital distinction in my mind. Most people, when they think of information technology, they think of automation. They think of taking some kind of task or process or activity or organization and computerizing it or systematizing it or streamlining it, optimizing all these kinds of words. Common theme here is this, that what you're applying the technology to already exists. The computer technology is important, improving whatever it is that's being computerized. Now, I've looked around the world at all sorts of examples of technology in all manner of sectors. And, of course, there's all sorts of fantastic examples of information technology improving organizations. But the really groundbreaking applications of technology are not instances of automation at all. The instances of what I call innovation. Innovation, in my terms at least, is the use of technology to allow you to do things that previously weren't possible. It's not about computerizing what already goes on. It's about using information technology to allow you to do different things. And many people are incredibly skeptical. They say, well, technology can never give rise to innovation, to new ways of working in that way. To these skeptics, I show this slide of the ATM, the cash dispenser, one of the most successful information technologies of the last 40 years. If you're of an automation mindset, that's to say, if you think the only way that information technology affects our lives is by automating something that already goes on, I ask this question, what process did that, did that automate? Was it the case that 40 years ago in the middle of the night, when you needed money, you went down to the local bank and there was a big hole in the wall, and you bent down, you said, 50 pounds, please, and a hand clutching fivers extended towards you, and you said, thank you, and you went about your business? Of course not. It wasn't that that process existed and some bankers got round the table and said, come on, chaps, this is rather inefficient and often quite chilly. Why don't we do it differently? No, information technology gave rise to a fundamentally new way of delivering the domestic banking service. So too in law. We've seen in other sectors innovation revolutionizing. Why not in law? And you'll hear me say this again and again. Why is it in the legal world we somehow think that our working practices, that our institutions are immune from technology and yet all other sectors of life in our economy and our social lives seem to be on a daily basis transformed by IT? I think it's not a sustainable point of view, and I want to suggest to you in a number of ways that technology will transform the way we live and work. Let's talk about the legal market, because this is the backdrop. And I'll talk about big clients, general counsel, as I say, people who may have teams of hundreds of lawyers themselves, but people who pay big firms to do complex pieces of work. I do a lot of work with them, and they say to me a whole bundle of things, but it seems to me I can reduce it to this. They face a dilemma in three parts. 
First of all, they're under enormous pressure to reduce their own internal headcount. Secondly, they're under pressure to reduce the amount they spend on external law firms. And yet at the same time, they tell me they have more legal and compliance work to do than ever before and that it's riskier too. That's the backdrop. That's the undeniable commercial backdrop to my discussion this evening. That most major organisations, I would actually say all, would nod in agreement that this is the position. They have to reduce the number of lawyers they have themselves. They've got less to spend in external law firms, and yet they've got more work to do than ever before. Now, it seems to me in this situation something has to give. It's unsustainable. There's a demand for more work, and yet there's less, less resource, resource available. And I summarize this by saying clients want more for less. And this is a fundamental premise of my book and of my, my current view of the legal world. Clients want more for less. And so do governments. Those of you who are interested in legal aid and understand and see right across the world diminishing public funds being made available to average citizens who can't afford recourse to the law, it's exactly the same point that those who administer legal aid, indeed I had a meeting this morning, the Legal Services Commission, confirming this, they want more for less. If lawyers are going to be paid to help citizens who are, who are poorly off, they want more bang for their buck. So this is the backdrop, more for less. How do we as a profession, and I, I believe it is the issue of the day, how do we deliver more legal service at less cost? Well, I believe there are only two basic strategies, and I call these the efficiency strategy and the collaboration strategy. The efficiency strategy said, we've got to cut the cost of legal service. The collaboration strategy said, well, actually, maybe clients can share the cost of legal service. I don't see there's any other options. There's the elimination strategy where you don't do it at all, but I, I would say that's part of the efficiency strategy. But it seems to me you either cut the costs or in some way you find a way of sharing the costs. But looking at each in turn for a couple of minutes and then uh, actually diving deep into each of these. Cutting the costs, you may think I'm saying, well, law firms should perhaps spend a little less on marketing or maybe reduce the number of people who are working in support services, run a tighter ship. That may or may not be true, and law firms are like businesses and have to be cautious in the way they uh, manage their expenditure, but I'm saying something far more fundamental than that. When I'm talking about cutting the costs of legal service, I'm talking about cutting the costs of lawyering. And here's a second premise, that a huge amount of what goes on in law firms around the world, in courts, in almost every form of legal business or concern, is routine and repetitive work that could be done differently and could be done at a lower cost. That's a fundamental premise, again, of my book, that when I look and I'm involved either full-time working within a law firm for almost a decade and for a decade since advising law firms, huge amounts of what goes on within law offices is routine and repetitive work that actually doesn't need the skills and talents of expensive lawyers. And when I speak to clients, they say to me, we don't mind paying high rates, six, seven, eight hundred pounds an hour even for leading city lawyers. What we really do mind though is paying junior lawyers 150 or 200 pounds when they're wet behind the ears and actually can bring very little to my business. That's the problem they have. And the reality is that a lot of the work that very junior lawyers do could actually be done by administrators, by paralegals, by others, could be done differently, and I'll say a lot more about that shortly. But this idea of working differently, of trying to find new ways of undertaking routine and repetitive work, leads me along a path towards what I call commoditization, and it also leads me towards the introduction of this idea that I call multi-sourcing, more of which in a second. The collaboration strategy is rather different. That's saying that clients actually will come together, whether it be citizens or major organizations, and somehow share the costs of getting legal advice. 
They'll pool their resources in a variety of ways. And I believe this is now going to be a lot more convenient uh, and enabled through the collaborative part of technology, and I'll say more about that too, and by online community. Now, many people, I, I should sense a relatively progressive audience before me today, but when I'm speaking to, say, the, the partners of a law firm, you can see the body language, the arms are folded, and they say, what, what kind of substance is this man on if he suggests that clients will share costs? It won't happen in my lifetime. As a matter of fact, it is already it's already happening, and happen almost every day I hear of another story. But I want to take you back to 1996 when I wrote this book called The Future of Law. And The Future of Law, in the time of speaking a lot in public, about it. Uh, one of my fundamental claims, and I know it seems really pedestrian in retrospect, was that the dominant way that lawyers and clients would come to communicate in the future would be by email. Okay? Now, at that stage, I kid you not, there were people senior in the law society saying I shouldn't be allowed to speak in public. Now, that actually may be true, but not for the reasons I was, they were suggesting. They were suggesting I was bringing the profession into disrepute, that I didn't understand confidentiality, that I had no idea about secu security and so forth. But in a very small number of years, of course, email came to dominate the way the lawyers and clients communicate. I say this simply to suggest to you that some of the things I put forward this evening might seem slightly unlikely. Nothing I say today is as unlikely as email was in 1996. I think everything I say today is way more predictable than that. Indeed, and since the two years since I submitted the manuscript to the book, just more and more evidence and emails and so forth come through confirming the, the, the thesis that I'm putting forward. Let's look at commoditization. One of my regrets writing the book is I used the word bespoke. Turns out uh, people in America, the United States, not Canada, uh, in the United States, they don't know the word bespoke. So uh, when I look at American lawyers, they look even more blank than normal when I'm speaking to them. And American lawyers don't like what I've got to say. An American lawyer came up to me recently and said, this is going to be my American accent, the Professor Siskin, I, I enjoyed your talk, but I found your attitude rather patronizing. And I said to him, I think you'll find it's pronounced patronizing. <laughs> Not actually true, but uh, bespoke, bespoke tailor, when you go to Savile Row and you have some individual measure every undulation and crevice in your body and fix uh, a suit around it, that's the highly tailored, the highly customized, the, the bespoke suit, cut and fitted for your precise requirements. And I believe there's a view of legal service that holds legal service to be bespoke in a similar way. It's the view of the lawyers, the artist, who starts with the blank canvas or the blank sheet of paper and crafts a solution specifically for each individual client. And each individual client, each individual case, is entirely different and novel. And so you have to craft a solution from scratch, tailored, customized, customized for particular needs of the particular clients. That's one view of legal service. And I have to say, uh, and I'm in a law school, I think that attitude to some extent stems from law school. You get the sense when you're doing problems in law school that almost every case could reach the Supreme Court. But remember, one of my thesis is that actually quite a lot of what goes on in the law office and in daily life is more routine and repetitive than that. But that's the bespoke model. At the other end of the spectrum, there's this idea of commoditized legal service. And you'll usually find lawyers talking about commoditized service through gritted teeth and perhaps with a dismissive wave of the right hand. Because what most lawyers are saying is we don't want to do commoditized work because actually you can't make money from it. That's what commoditized work means for most people in the legal profession. It's become such a commonplace, it's become so easy to administer that you can't charge sensible fees. And there's this view in the profession, and I believe it's entirely wrong, that you do one or t'other. You're either highly bespoke or you commoditize. And I think we can do better than that. And my suggestion is we're actually evolving through five phases. Uh, 
along a path towards commoditization. To give you a sense of each, just to pick a, a neutral example, the drafting of employment contracts. You might be a big firm that drafts employment contracts, and you might do that in a very handcrafted, bespoke way. But frankly, when the same kinds of employment contracts have to be drafted every time, you stop working in a bespoke way, you come to standardize. And lawyers standardize in two ways, in terms of process and in terms of substance. In terms of process, you use checklists, procedure manuals, practice guides. In terms of substance, you use standard form documents or precedents or templates. You don't actually draft from scratch very often in practice when you're working in that kind of area. Sometimes you go further and you systematize. So rather than using paper checklists, you might use automatic workflow. And rather than actually metaphorically or actually cutting and pasting from old documents, you can use automatic document assembly, answer a series of questions on screen, out comes a polished first draft. That technology, believe it or not, is enjoying its 30th anniversary this year. I call it this because the first main article on the subject was written 30 years ago in the American Bar Association Journal. It is actually challenging, but entirely possible to develop a system that will generate highly polished documents. That's called systematization. So imagine the legal practice systematizes the generation of employment contracts. But clients might say, well, hang on a second. You've now got quite junior people answering questions on screen. Why can't we do that ourselves? And so it's come to pass that a number of firms have said, you're right, and have offered across the internet access to these systems. So clients, perhaps in the HR, the, the uh, personnel department, simply answer a series of questions about a proposed employee, and again out comes this fairly polished draft. Now this packaging for many lawyers is a step too far. Lawyers will say to me, I didn't go to law school to package my knowledge in that way. I'm not a publisher. But I go back to KPMG. We exist to turn our knowledge into value for the benefit of our clients. If we can find better or quicker or cheaper or more convenient or less forbidding ways of delivering access to legal knowledge or legal documentation, and clients want that, who are we as lawyers to say that's not how we want to work? The market will speak for itself, but frankly, those organizations who embrace these technologies are already enjoying substantial success. My biggest client over the last 10 years has been Deloitte Tax. In their work for companies, their compliance work, they've moved right along that spectrum uh, from highly handcrafted bespoke service through to packaged service. Again, they've delivered their expertise, their knowledge in the form of a, a, essentially a piece of software. But what's interesting about that piece of software is it can, contains the distillation of many tens, even hundreds of tax experts and experience. It's not one individual. So as you move from left to right, you're actually building in the collective knowledge and insight. At some stage, and I put a red line there because I accept lawyers don't want to go over this line, but at some stage, online legal materials, documents, insight, drafting, and so forth, will become so commonplace that actually they'll be available, I believe, at no cost, and they'll look just like some form of commodity. And that's what I call commoditized legal service. In particular, you find when there's more than one competing online service that are quite similar to one another, the price goes very quickly towards zero. So that's what I'm saying, and I want to say a little bit more about this, this model in a second. That's what I'm saying is the evolution of legal service from highly bespoke to commoditized. Economists say in the right, that as you move from left to right, the marginal costs of delivering legal service reduce. Another observation related in some ways is that uh, towards the left-hand side, when it's highly bespoke or even standardized, you tend to deliver services on an hourly billing basis, but when you systematize and package, you tend to work in a fixed fee basis. Now, those people who've worked in law offices will know that up until very recently, 
absolutely the dominant way in which lawyers have charged for the services has been on an hourly billing basis. But it's quite a bizarre way to charge for your services when you think about it. I always tell a story of my daughter when she was 12. She asked for a summer job, and I said, I needed some cards put in, uh, business cards put in Outlook. So I showed her how to do it, and then she said to me, how much are you going to pay me? And I said, well, I didn't really think about it very much, but just uh, out it came. I said, well, I thought I'd just pay you by the hour. And honestly, she thought about that for two seconds, smiled and said, I'll take my time then. Now, it seems to me if a 12-year-old can see the problem of hourly billing, I'm not sure why some of the most sophisticated lawyers and clients in the world can. It's a nonsense to give a blank check to a professional advisor. We hardly do that in any other walk of life. So only in a very limited set of circumstances do I see it as justifiable. But it has dominated the way very profitable law firms have worked for many years. Now, what do most law firms say? And I should say uh, that uh, I have advised and do advise many of the, the leading law firms in this country. So uh, the ideas, although challenging, are not rejected out of hand. And I have a whole bundle of clients who are taking these ideas seriously, some of the, the world's leading firms, in fact. But most law firms' early intuition is to take, a, if they have, a red marker pen, put a circle around bespoke and say, our firm does mainly bespoke work, and that is how it should be. And there's two things there. There's a factual claim and there's what one might say is a, a, sti- a kind of statement of strategy. Uh, the factual claim is actually wrong for most firms. Because um, most firms in the city at, at least have moved from be- to bespoke to standardised in a big way. If you look at banking and finance, um, banking and finance lawyers, sophisticated, high-charging, important lawyers, very little of their work relatively speaking, is bespoke. Huge amounts of it are standardised. Lots of systematised as well. So you take that the top ten firms, as a matter of fact, a huge amount of their work does not actually live in the bespoke box. If you look at the profession more generally, a lot of it's still bespoke. But that is how it should be, is an interesting strategic claim. Uh, and I actually think why that's wrong is because clients are very much wanting a pool from left to right. Just before I explain why that is, I just want to say one more thing about the model. What I'm not saying is you take any dealer dispute, any piece of work, and you say into which of Richard's boxes does it fit. I'm saying something I think a lot more subtle than that. What I'm saying is you can break down, I say decompose, any piece of legal work into its constituent tasks and ask of each of these tasks, what's the most efficient way of doing that work? Where should it sit along the spectrum? That's what clients are saying they want, greater efficiency. They're saying don't treat the work as some big monolithic, uh, indivisible lump of stuff that you have to do in a bespoke way. Drive some efficiencies through. We see in all manner of other disciplines and sectors, why are we not doing it in law? So the point is one decomposes work and see where the elements fit across the spectrum. So in a big banking and financing, of course there'll be some bespoke work. But just because there's some bespoke, it doesn't mean we should conduct it all in a bespoke way. Now, why do clients want to move from left to right? Well, three reasons, essentially. As you move from left to right, the price goes down. As you move from left to right, the price becomes more certain. And that, I'm told, is even more important in these difficult times. And you move from left to right, and this is surprising, perhaps, the quality goes up. Now, why does the quality go up? Well, what you have when you start to systematize, for example, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, is the distillation of many experts' expertise in their system. And every time I would put a well-conceived system, I'd pit that against even the most talented of expert handcrafting on their own. These systems are designed not to make errors. Almost every human being has an off day. And so I accept there's quite a lot of work that still needs to be done in a bespoke way, but huge amounts can be done differently, and clients are saying that's how they would like it. And why are they saying that? Well, just to give you a very simple statistic, 
I would say on average, most general counsel in-house lawyers are being asked by their boards, by their companies, to reduce the amount they spend in lawyers by 30%. 30% is a huge amount. They need to find more, new ways of delivering more for less. Today, if I look right across the profession, um, not just in the city, I think the, the spread of work looks a little like this. Within three years, I believe it will look like this. Within seven years, it will look like that. And within 10 years, it will look like that. Now, that's a radically different legal profession. When I was the age of many law students in this room, see, almost exactly, I think, uh, 25 years ago, and was at that stage of thinking, do I go into practice? When we were discussing it, there was no sense in which we thought the legal practice was going to change. It would just be legal practice. You were going into legal practice. And there was no sense, gosh, there's all sorts of changes. And like, Absolutely not. It looked like a fairly stable career. And the reality is, although law firms have grown and become more profitable and so forth, the fundamental work that goes on is quite similar. What I'm saying to you today is, if you're just starting your career and, you get 25, and look 25 years ahead, you have no clue what legal service is looking like. None whatsoever. And in fact, I'm saying in 10 years it's going to look radically different. And if I can say something quite scary to you, and I think this is really scary, there's no one in the profession in this country who you might think is in the driving seat who is giving any serious thought at all to the legacy we're leaving our young lawyers. Not in the law society, not in government, not in academe, not in the legal profession. There is not one single person who is thinking 10 years ahead in a strategic, systematic way. And that is the scariest thing I can imagine for people who are devoting their lives to studying law. And I say this quite clearly and things all around the country and all around the world just now because the senior people in the profession need to get their act together. Every other profession takes the future seriously. Do you think doctors don't look a few years ahead? Of course they do. Look at the oil industry. They look 50 years ahead. They do scenario planning for all manner of different eventualities. And in law, law firms tend not to look beyond the current month uh, if you're actually the average partner and looking at your figures. If you're running a law firm, you've maybe got three or five, five years before retirement. You're not thinking beyond that. If you're in government, you're not thinking beyond the next election. And the law society uh, and bar council, I'm afraid simply don't embrace new ideas as quickly as the, the rest of the world. I edit a journal called the International Journal of Law and Information Technology, published by Oxford University Press, serious peer-reviewed journal. I've been editing it and founded it in the early 90s. I've not once had an article from an academic on the future of the legal profession. What is going on? I can't answer the question. All I can see is I beaver away and do my best, but it's not fun doing it my own. It really is the future of the profession. And those lawyers who think it's simply going to be much as it is today, it's absolutely, it seems to me, delusional. Let's talk a little bit about decomposing. That's the end of a mild rant, incidentally. Decomposing. <laughs> what I'm saying is work is not legal matters, deals or disputes are not indivisible blocks. You can break them down into tasks. So let's take litigation, for example. Most of you have a rough idea what litigation is about. But litigation is not just one thing. It's at least these nine things. You've got to review documents, you've got to do legal research, there's a project to be managed because a litigation is a bit of a project. There's litigation support, the systems are used to organise all the data, there's a process in some jurisdictions of electronic disclosure, there's a strategy of a dispute, there's a tactics, there's a negotiation, there's advocacy. And what I say to the largest law firms in the world is, which of these are you uniquely placed to do? And the answer at most is three. Historically, they've done them all. Law firms have done them all. But when you decompose, you think, actually, we could do this differently. Project management's a good example, because many litigators say to me, I'm not a lawyer anymore, I'm a project manager. And I often say, well, how much training have you had in project management? And they'll say, quite seriously, well, I've been in a three-day course. 
And I say if a project manager came to you and said they were a lawyer because they'd been in a three-day law course, you'd think they're nuts. We don't take other disciplines seriously in law. But take document review and litigation. You're involved with a dispute, say a million documents. Someone has to do an initial trawl through them. You can now actually have that done in India for about a tenth of the price that it costs an English or American law firm to do. Why would you want to pay ten times more than you need to? Legal research, that can now be outsourced to other organizations too. I can go through each one. All that's left for the lawyers who can genuinely say that they have more experience than others is strategy and tactics of litigation. That actually means the whole infrastructure of a law firm that spends on litigation is potentially redundant. Some do advocacy, but much of that's actually handed over to barristers. This leads me to a model that I call multi-sourcing. And this is the idea, if you think of it, the manufacture of this computer, for example, we know, don't we, that the screen wasn't manufactured in the same place as the keyboard, as the hard disk, as the motherboard. What happens is that a computer company specifies its requirements, goes out to a whole bundle of potential suppliers, and consistent with the specification it draws up and levels of quality and testing, it by and large will choose the lowest cost provider. And what you do then is you get all the parts coming in from different uh, countries even, brought together through all sorts of logistics and supply chain management, delivered as one seamless entity for the end user. I reckon that's how legal service is going to be delivered in the future. And I call this multi-sourcing. You'll come up with, you'll break down the work and you'll farm it out to all sorts of different sources. And in the manner of manufacturing, you'll bring it together as one. Now, many people say, well, law's just not like that. It's more complicated. Take the motherboard of a computer. More complicated than any single piece of legal work that's ever been done anywhere. By a vast margin, many orders of magnitude. I just don't accept that lawyers can't break down their work. They do it all the time anyway, when they delegate it, when they hand it out to barristers and so forth. All of that's rationalization. You can do in legal services what, frankly, every other industry and sector is doing, and that is becoming more efficient. And I say there are at least 12 different ways of sourcing legal service. I won't go into each in detail, but think of Rio Tinto. Uh, one of the world's largest mining corporations, recently announced it was outsourcing a lot of its legal work to CPA Global. CPA Global have been providing services through India in intellectual property uh, for over 40 years. But basically, the legal department of Rio Tinto reviewed their legal work, identified in my terms that a lot of it was routine and repetitive, and now I've got a team of far, far less costly Indian legal graduates doing the work. The second thing they said was they went to their law firms, the big law firms that advised them. They said, we love your work that your experts do, but we're tired of paying, frankly, for junior people to do quite routine and repetitive work. We'd like you, instead of doing that work yourself, to give it to CPA Global to do. That has caused such a ripple right across the legal profession. Because actually, how most law firms make money is by having junior people doing this work. I'm not here to tell you, uh, I, I think, a, a good tale. I'm simply to tell you to let you know how the profession is developing. This is important. It's a significant set of developments. This costs, uh, it's interesting, I did an interview of Leah Cooper, who's the managing counsel of um, Rio Tinto. It's on the Legal Week website, so a half-hour interview at no cost if you want to look. And she's just so articulate, so impressive, and so compelling about issues such as quality control and liability. All the issues that Lawrence raised, she's got actually pinned down. And just last week, she won a major award for that work. It, as I say, has caused such a stir because people think, actually, there are different ways we can provide legal services. What do New Zealand and South Africa have in common? Well, there's at least two of the Magic Circle firms and the top five firms in London who subcontract significant amounts of work to English-qualified lawyers in these jurisdictions because they undertake the work at lower costs. That's a different form of sourcing. Or Voxius, a recruitment company in Axiom, well, they lease lawyers. 
Axiom set up in the United States as a, a new career opportunity, really, for people who didn't want to go the partner route in law firms and didn't want to work in-house, in fact, didn't want to work full-time. Set up essentially a glorified temp agency of lawyers. They've now got hundreds of them, average, I think, 12 years qualified. So when a client has a steady stream of work and then some kind of a peak, rather than going to the law firm, they'll go to Axiom and they'll actually contract someone in, leasing lawyers, half the price of law firms. Multi-sourcing, so there's this idea for a piece of work, you break it down and you say, well, there's eight different tasks, we're going to offshore that, outsource that, subcontract that, lease that bit and we'll keep the bespoke work ourselves. It's going to change the shape of the legal profession. Underpinning all of this, I think, and in fact fueling it is technology. But I find a tendency amongst lawyers actually to think that for some reason, and I hinted at this earlier, technology doesn't apply to the legal world. It is true that lawyers now concede that email has transformed their communication habits and indeed that the World Wide Web has revolutionized the way that lawyers seek information. But most lawyers genuinely say to me, that's about as far as they'll go to the law because we're different, we're a people-based business. And what we do is rather complex and is beyond the scope of computers and can't really outsource it. There's all sorts of rationalization going on there. And also what I find fascinating is that lawyers say to me, and technology's being overhyped anyway, isn't it? The, the, the internet's fading out. It's, it's the dot-com bubble burst. It's actually declining technology, isn't it? All over-exaggerated. And all I want to say tonight, just to give a flavor, and there's many ways I can do this, but you should know this chap, Ray Kurzweil. When I was doing my doctorate in Oxford, he was um, one of my intellectual heroes. He'd he's a great futurist. Uh, he predicted the World Wide Web 10 years before it came into to play. He, I, I remember when I started Oxford, there was something called optical character recognition. We've all got it on all our machines and our scanners just now. There were five machines in England at the time, and one was at Oxford, and they were called Kurzweil's. He invented it. He's a great guy. He's, not, well, he, he's written a book called, uh, full disclosure here, he's written a book called, uh, or subtitled, Live Long Enough to Live Forever. And he said to take 250 vitamin pills a day. So he, I accept he's not your regular Joe, but he's an interesting guy and someone you might want to, to read more about. So if there's any book other than my own today that I'd recommend you read, I think it's his, which is called, or his latest one, The Singularity is Near, which is about the coming together of genetics, robotics, nanotechnology, and information technology. Just focusing on information technology, and a huge oversimplification here, far from finding that technology is fading away, what he finds, whether or not you look at the number of transistors in the chip, the size of random access memory, number of internet users, interestingly gone from about 40 million in 1997 to 1.3 billion users today. Whatever way you look at information technology, the growth we're seeing is actually exponential, depicted in that curve. And he says just now we're actually at the knee of the curve, which is to say what we've experienced is quite remarkable growth. We're just warming up. There's going to be an unimaginable explosive growth. Those of you who are interested in this may have known of Moore's Law, Gordon Moore in 1965, predicted that every 18 months processing power would double, but its cost would half. Most people at the time said, well, that'll last three or four years. It's still going strong. And people who write about this and research in this area say for the foreseeable future, we're, we're stuck with Moore's Law. It's just remarkable. I held my first pocket calculator in 1974 when I was 13. If you follow the curve, by 2020, the average desktop machine will be able to undertake 10 to the 16th or 10 to the 17th calculations per second, which neuroscientists will tell you is about the same processing power of the human brain. I'm not saying they're artificially intelligent, I'm just giving you a sense of how far we've come in, frankly, just two generations. One generation, I suppose. But think about this. By 2050, following the curve, the average desktop machine will have more processing power than all of humanity put together. 
Now, you can call me radical, but I think if you can see the day where the average desktop machine has more processing power than all of humanity put together, it might be time for lawyers to rethink at least some of our working practices. It simply cannot be the case that technology is revolutionizing all aspects of our social and economic lives, and that lawyers will insist it doesn't apply to them. I don't accept that. And you may say, well, I'm exaggerating, but just look at the online community. And I'm not saying use these technologies, here, uh, but just think about something like instant messaging. How many people in the room here instant message? Use instant messaging. MSN Messenger, come on. It's uh, <laughs> not telling the truth. Uh, but I would say about a third of you. When I speak to lawyers, most people, uh, uh, I often say, if you don't know what it is, you probably don't use it. But 300 million people use this technology. That's not a couple of people. 300 million, it's a significant chunk of humanity. And it came out of nowhere. Or what about blogging? How many people, come on, be honest, how many people in the room here blog? I would say five or six. Now, other the five or six in this room who blog, I, I do concede that the 100 million other bloggers don't often have that much interesting to say. I accept the point. And I'm not saying that uh, blogging is high quality necessarily. I'm simply saying that we're seeing a radical change in the way we use technology. Go back to 1997. When we used the web then, we were simply passive recipients of whatever people wanted to publish at us. But now we're actually participants, we're contributors. You can actually contribute, simply go online and blog and leave comments and so forth. It's remarkably interactive and that was barely imaginable in the mid-90s. But what's even more unimaginable, it seems to me, is mass collaboration. Think about Wikipedia. How many people use Wikipedia? I'm Stephen. Yeah, most people. Uh, possibly the world's most prestigious science journal is Nature. And it did a comparative analysis of the coverage of 50 core science topics in Wikipedia as compared with Encyclopedia Britannica. It got 100 experts. It was a double blind peer review study. And its conclusion was that there's no significant difference in quality between the two. Controversial stuff. How can that be? I mean, as a lad, there was nothing came close to Encyclopedia Britannica in terms of the, the, the eminence of the contributors, the quality of the editorial uh, oversight, the, the lavish way in which it was produced. How can about 13,000 volunteers, these people are not paid, not project managed, very lightly edited, come together and produce something of that quality? It's unimaginable. It's, in fact, 260 languages, 14 million articles. It rivals Britannica in terms of content, and yet outstrips it in so many ways. And the reality is, if you put 1.35 billion people together on a network, strange things begin to happen. It's new behaviors that are unimaginable. And I'm not saying go to news wikis if you're a lawyer. I'm saying, actually, hang on, there's ways of emerging, of capturing and sharing and editing and knowledge using wikis. Why are you not using that with your clients? Why are you not using it internally? Think about these emerging technologies. Or Facebook. How many people here on Facebook? Oh, quite a lot. I'm going to embarrass my son now about what I'm going to say. But um, I often say to, I know, say to audiences, uh, I, compared to my children, I've got an embarrassingly small number of friends on Facebook, and I'm not fussy. So if anyone wants to be my friend, just uh, do come on board. Um, over 300 million users. Um, it is fascinating, I think how it has revolutionized the way the intergener internet generation communicate. The internet generation for me is the, the generation of people who can't remember a pre-internet world. It's hard for you to imagine what it was like when I was uh, 20 going out on a Saturday night. Because uh, you had to make all the arrangements on a fixed line phone in your house. And once you left the house, that was it. Uh, you couldn't contact anyone. So that, you, just could, you had to choreograph everything. It was almost like some kind of decision tree if you're not there. there. And th life was just so wildly different. Having global, instantaneous, portable communication 
was science fiction. We looked at it in Star Trek and we said, that's a joke, it'll never happen. And it's just fantastic how we've changed. And this is why I do say, if you can't remember that pre-internet world, you don't know what you're in amongst. And many of you who are thinking, well, Facebook's, of course, for social life, but that's actually misguided. Um, it's a bit like people saying in 1996, emails for technology geeks. What you've got to see in Facebook is you have a way of networking, maintaining contact with all your network of individuals. Your way of collaborating, communicating, setting up subgroups. That's what lawyers do on a daily basis. They collaborate, they communicate, they harness their networks. And yet they're using antediluvian technology for this. We have emerging all manner of techniques and, te and systems which could hugely enhance the way they work, and yet we insist that Facebook is the playthings of our young. For those who are skeptical, I don't know, you know, you can get online pets, neopets. 150 million people have online pets. If I can get more than one, 70 million people have two. As I say to lay audiences, what's more or less likely, an online pet or an online lawyer? The reality is there's no finishing line in IT. It's not fading away, it's exponentially exploding. Uh, and we as lawyers, it seems to me, have to keep pace. Think about Twitter, I won't dwell on this, but if I was speaking a year ago, hardly any of us would have known what it is. And yet now I can point to quite a lot of senior lawyers around the world are actually tweeting, it can't take itself seriously with a term like that, are, are tweeting away regularly. When I speak in US audiences, there's an average of 300 tweets in one of my one-hour lectures. People are sitting there tweeting. Other people are listening in. They're not even there. They're watching uh, summaries of it. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying our world is changing. And this one, for those of you who can see, is two people on a stage. Or is it? In fact, and this is honestly true, one of them is not there. They're beamed in using holographic telepresence technology. It costs a fortune. It costs about a million pounds to do this. But you can actually beam people in to conferences now. I'm not actually here today, I'm, uh, <laughs> but this is, uh, this is entirely, I'm just giving a flavor, our world is changing. Anyone here has used telepresence, the latest video conferencing, you feel you are in the same room as these individuals. And anyone who's talking about courtrooms, I talk about virtual courtrooms, you can sit with someone in a telepresence environment, Cisco do it, HP do it, uh, lots of others do it. You can sit in that environment and you feel you're in the same room. It's natural to offer the person with whom you're conferencing a cup of tea. You feel you're in the same place. These technologies are not going to get any worse. Today, they're unbelievable. Can you imagine what they're going to like in 10 years' time when they're three-dimensional? We've got to think how these apply in the legal world. What does all this mean for lawyers? Well, if you look at the work of Clayton Christensen, um, Harvard Business School professor, he distinguishes between two forms of technology, sustaining and disruptive. Sustaining technologies are technologies that support the way a business works. Disruptive te technologies are technologies that come along, fundamentally challenge or change the way a business works, or indeed the way a market functions and operates. Digital camera technology, for example, was fundamentally disruptive for Kodak. I argue in my book there are 10 disruptive legal technologies. Just to give a flavor, have a look at sermo.com, S-E-R-M-O.com. 100,000 doctors online sharing knowledge and insight into drugs, therapies, disease patterns. Why wouldn't lawyers want to use that? Online dispute resolution, it's court a service for a place. Do we need to congregate physically together? There's a whole movement of new techniques for resolving disputes online. How are disputes resolved in eBay? $80 billion worth of goods traded last year. No disputes, of course, there are lots of them. They're all settled online. There are ways of doing this. I've talked about automated drafting. Electronic legal marketplace, why can't we have in law, in fact we now are having, online options for services, price comparison systems for lawyers, reputation systems for lawyers. They're all coming soon and they're all disruptive for the legal profession. What we're going to see is a change in shape of lawyers. 
and legal teams. The traditional model is this. You've got the expert trusted advisor at the top of the triangle with routine work being done by junior lawyers at the bottom. If I'm even nearly right, we're going to find all sorts of new ways of sourcing that work. That'll change the shape of every legal organization in the world. I can't see that that's avoidable. That's how it's going to be. So what's the future of lawyers? Well, the fundamental question, I think the question of the day is, what parts of lawyers' work could be undertaken differently? And by this, I mean more quickly or cheaply, efficiently, or to a higher quality, using alternative methods of working. I ask lawyers to put their hands on their hearts and ask themselves that question. Simply don't believe any lawyers who say, none of my work can be done differently. And around the world, I've seen so many case studies of that different way of working. Bigger question, maybe, for what will lawyers be needed once greater efficiency is imposed, when clients have online resources, and if in-house lawyers can come together and share, collaborate, share content with one another in a sermo-like way, as, as uh, doctors are doing. So why do you need lawyers? I think you need them in two circumstances, where deep expertise is needed or where complex communication is needed. And I always see a collective relaxation of shoulders in the... Uh, and amongst lawyers, when I'm speaking to them, when they see this slide, they say, oh, that's me. I, I'm, I'm deeply expert. <laughs> and my communication can be as complicated as you like, but not so fast is what I say. Uh, my doctorate, in many ways, looked at what legal expertise is. And there's really two things that might be. One is complexity. So you might, uh, being an expert might just be familiar, familiarity with the complex web of rules. That can be modeled. So if that's what you're relying on as your deep expertise as a lawyer, Quite quickly, that will be modelled. I don't mean overnight, but in the next decade, at least possible. And creativity can be exaggerated. Edison said that genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. I don't see why that doesn't apply to lawyers as well. We often say, because uh, the second, I suppose, if, if the first part of expertise is complexity or familiarity with a complex body of rules, the second aspect of, aspect of expertise, in my view at least, is where you need judgment or creativity. But I think we often exaggerate that. Uh, and so when you strip away and you put your hand on your heart, you see the amount of bespoke work is actually quite limited. As regards the face-to-face -face contact, because many lawyers will say to me, my clients want to look me in the eyes. I look them in the eyes and think, I think that's unlikely. But I can see the, the point that it's a highly interpersonal interaction. But the reality is all research is suggesting that direct contact is diminishing in any event. But a bigger point, and I can't speak for the generation, the next, genera next generation, but it can't be that our current communication habits, as the ruling classes that were within law, should bind future generations. I cannot imagine that the internet generation will find it as natural to go and visit a lawyer when you have perfectly adequate video conferencing, to attend a court when there will be other alternative methods of resolving disputes. And so I think while we can perhaps hang on to the idea when deep expertise and complex communications required, the bespoke law is still needed, I think we have to be very careful that we don't exaggerate that. There are future doctor lawyers. I don't have time to go into this in detail. Um, it's another talk. But what I'm not saying is there's no job for lawyers. Quite the opposite. I think there's huge amounts that lawyers will do in the future, but there'll be different jobs. Just as every other profession and sector has changed, lawyers will change too. Who's going to develop these online systems? That requires legal knowledge engineers. Who's going to decompose the work and farm it out? That requires legal process analysts. Who's going to project manage? Vital task, the outsourcing and multi-sourcing. Who's going to manage the legal risk? We need a whole new set of techniques for that. There's huge amounts for lawyers to do, and there's land to be reclaimed as well, as lawyers have ceded so much territory to the accountants in terms of tax and regulation. There is no problem for a profession that's alive to change and willing to change. It's only if you put your head in the sand and you say, <coughs> there's lots of bespoke work for all time for us. That just isn't the case. And one final thought for you. I, 
I don't know who's assembled in the room, but bright, young, law students, anxious to proceed. The question's not really, Richard, what does the future look like? I mean, I, I follow the, the thinking, I think it's a great phrase by Alan Kay, who's a Silicon Valley guru, who said the best way to predict the future is to invent it. That's the message I want to leave with you, that while I am challenging and to some extent depressing and saying there's no one looking after your future, it's actually up to you to look to the future and start inventing it. It's up to you to go into law firms and start changing them. It's up to you to maybe go beyond the legal profession and bring about some of the changes I'm talking about. The future is not out there predestined, set in stone. I don't see it any more clear than others. All I'm doing is laying out a buffet and saying, here's a whole bundle of things that might happen. Now, it could go very badly wrong for the profession if, the, frankly, the new possibilities aren't embraced. But if bright, young, energetic, imaginative, entrepreneurial people go forth and change the profession, it could be as rich a place as ever to work. Now, I, people often, I, I'm conscious I look at the world rather differently and often preface my conversations and presentations by saying I look at the world differently. And people say to me, well, how differently can you actually look at the world? And I, I always tell a story, if you don't mind me, just two minutes more of, um, and even if you do mind me, two minutes more, of, uh, <laughs> I'm going through with this one. Um, when I was a law student back in 1979, I was in the pub one evening, and a friend of mine, a strange summer job, he was telling me about. And the job was they had to rent a truck and take it to a factory, unload goods from the factory into the truck and take it to a warehouse. And one day he said to me uh, he had a problem because it was a particularly large load and he had to rent a very large truck and he couldn't do it on his own. And would I like to help? And this chap, this is, all, all of this is entirely true story. He was reputed to be a dreadful driver. I just thought to myself, no way, you can't drive a car, still less a big truck. But he offered me a, a fee I couldn't resist, and uh, off I went. Next day, look outside the house, massive truck pulls outside, get in this thing, he can't drive it at all, it's kangarooing along. So many near accidents, you just wouldn't believe it. But eventually we arrive at the factory, and we take the goods to the warehouse, and I have to concede, and I don't know how it happened, but by some miracle he seemed to master the vehicle. And he was actually looking quite cool in the cockpit, his arm out the window, and he was, for those of you who remember the <coughs> illusion, he was chewing a Yorkie bar, but he thought he was a regular, he thought he was a regular trucker. And do remember this is absolutely true. I, I was thinking we're home and dry, uh, but about half a mile from home there's a tunnel ahead of us, and it's quite a low tunnel, and you'll remember we're in quite a high truck. And I said to him quite casually when we were 200 yards away, I don't think we're going to get through there. I don't think there's space. And I'm thinking, high tunnel. Uh, sorry, high truck, low tunnel. This can't be right. He's saying, no, I think it's okay. Uh, and I said, 100 yards to go. I'm saying, just don't think there's space there. Said, high truck, low tunnel. And he's saying, look, I've been driving this all day, and I really think I've got a sense of the dimensions of this vehicle. It's not going to be difficult. It's going to be tight, but it's not going to be a problem. 50 yards to go, I'm now screaming, saying, stop. He says, who's driving this? You or me? I said, you are, but you've got to stop. We're going to crash. He says, no way. Crunch. Unbelievable crash. Huge mess. Absolutely true. And he turned to me and uttered words I'll never forget. He said, I thought you meant with. <laughs> with. <laughs> so I hope tonight uh, that when I've been talking about height, you haven't been thinking about width. My view in the profession is not mainstream. My view in the profession is not widely accepted, but nor now is it widely rejected. What I hope to do today, as I say, was lay out the buffet, saying, here are some options for the future. I wish you well in exploiting that future. Thank you. Right, well, we now have time for some questions to Professor Suskind. If you have a question, can you indicate quite clearly to me that you want to be called upon? Can I ask you to identify yourself before you ask your question? And can you wait until the microphone arrives at you before you ask the question? 
Yes, lady at the back. Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Julie. I'm a Canadian lawyer and an LLM student here at LSE. Thank you. Um, that was interesting and thought-provoking. I think that once your book was published, uh, it was discussed in one of the uh, Canadian Bar Association journals, and uh, it caused quite a bit of chatter amongst the profession. But I had two questions, or my question is twofold following your um, speech today. And the last part, you mentioned that perhaps the complexity or expertise and creativity level that of lawyers' work is exaggerated, uh, or is exaggerated by lawyers. I'm wondering how you, that is to be reconciled by the level of training and education that's required to become a lawyer. So you just have to repeat that. I lost you uh, uh, just, just the last uh, half of your sentence there. Well, the question is twofold. The first one is, when you mentioned that the um, complexity or expertise of lawyers is sometimes exaggerated yes. in their work, how that is to be reconciled with the amount of training or education that's required to be or continue to be a lawyer. And the second part of my question is how you foresee the landscape of professional self-regulation um, with regards to the legal profession in the future, specifically when it regards to um, the statutory monopoly that lawyers have on legal services? Okay, I mean, the, the first question, uh, what I'm not saying and never have been saying is that there's no need for expertise. What I'm suggesting is that, as in so many other professions, there's a bit of a George Bernard Shaw point when he said that professions are conspiracies against the laity. I think we just happen to be cautious that we don't, um, either consciously or unconsciously, uh, dress up our work in a way that is disingenuous and that we often exaggerate or, uh, the extent to which genuine creativity and expertise is required. And all I'm saying is that when, and I give you an example of the decomposing litigation, when you, when you think of large-scale litigation, you think, oh gosh, this is all terribly difficult and needs very high-powered lawyers. Of course, some of it really does, but a lot of it is quite routine. A lot of it is quite process-based. And if you speak to even the, I'll just give you a quick case study. The, the largest deal that was ever done, it was an acquisition of one oil company by another. Uh, the partner in charge, a US uh, law firm, the partner in charge of the deal went on record as saying, biggest deal ever, 25% of it required our brightest lawyers and 75% of it was processed. The tendency of most corporate lawyers, to be honest, is to say, oh, it's just terrible. It, you know, we, it's a blank sheet of paper every time. Every deal's entirely new. That's just not the reality. <clears throat> And it's a real worry that the people, either consciously or unconsciously, overstate the extent to which the work needs to be done in a bespoke way. The regulation point, I, let me come at a slightly different angle, because I think the, uh, um, the most significant uh, dimension of all of this is the 2007 Legal Services Act in England, which uh, by 2011, I think it's probably going to be about late 2011, um, will allow alternative business structures, external investment in law firms by non-lawyers, participation in the management of law firms by uh, non-lawyers and so forth, and the establishment, frankly, of new legal businesses that look nothing like law firms today. So in the English legal market, uh, this is large-scale liberalization, large-scale deregulation, stemming, I suppose, from original work suggesting that some of the working practices of, uh, of lawyers and legal professions were anti-competitive. Um, so I think, um, interestingly, where you come from in Canada, they haven't embraced the ABS, the alternative business structure model. But what I say to all professions across the, country, uh, across the world, in fact, is that um, if it takes off in, the, in England and it succeeds there and new legal businesses 
find cheaper, better, quicker, more efficient ways of delivering legal services to clients, that'll create a whole new level of demand, a ripple effect right across the global legal community. And so actually a profession that hasn't been deregulated, that hasn't been liberalized will be put at a considerable disadvantage. And so I think certainly in England, I'm excited, for me it's one of the, the, the big um, new developments, probably one of the largest developments, it's one of the, I, I mean, it's one of four I've mentioned commoditization um, I mentioned technology, for example. These are unquestionably of huge impact, but I think structure in the profession, the idea that you can have non-lawyer, for, for most partners, the idea of uh, law firms being run and owned by, say, a private equity firm, or the idea of what's called Tesco law, where you have a supermarket or a bank delivering legal services. For many lawyers, that's horrific. For other lawyers, they think, actually, it's great. We can maybe be involved in that. Um, and I, I, I advise a private equity firm on this, on this whole area, and um, it's just fascinating to see they start, with, they start with a blank sheet of paper. They look at the legal services market in the UK, and the first thing they say is it's £25 billion. Uh, they look at research that was undertaken by which, uh, which suggested, I think it was in 2003, that it's certainly consumer law, which is about 10 or £12 billion. Uh, Two-thirds of consumers said they were at least open to the idea of going to high street banks or supermarkets to receive legal services rather than law firms. And the mindset, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's passing along the perception, the mindset of the, of the private equity or the external investment, so well, there's, there's going to be about two-thirds of 10 or 12 billion up for grabs that we can work differently. That's not even touching the commercial market. And I, I cannot predict how this is going to, to unpack. What I would say is I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I think, the, uh, I think what we got, it, Bill Gates is great when he says of technology, less happens in two years and more happens in ten years. I think the same is true of liberalisation in the market. But I think within ten years you'll find some very significant new players. And to stress again, it's not just an English phenomenon, it's also Scottish as it happens. But I think you'll see a ripple effect right across the global community. So, gentleman in the front row there. And then... Oh, oh sorry, here, sorry, here first, sorry. <laughs> I'm Carsten Gennaborle, I'm from the LSE Law Department. Since you were talking about the future, I remembered this wonderful book that I read a long time ago, um, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, and there the scientist travels into the future some 10,000 years or so, and he finds that humankind has fantastic machines, highly sophisticated. However, everything is rather derelict because they don't have anyone to repair them because they lost the knowledge how to build them on the way. And so I remember you, you showed us this, this graph of how the delivery of legal services is moving from the left to the right and um, prepackaged solutions become more and more dominant and important. And you also suggested that that would be a possibility to save costs by cutting out the junior associate. But how are they going to learn? And when at one point a very complex deal comes up and you need bespoke services, will you find someone who still has the sophistication and the knowledge to actually deliver them? Uh, that, I mean, it's a big question. It's one I first addressed in 1996 in Future of Law because I anticipated that would be a, a big question. Uh, the first thing, I, there's a huge, there's about six or seven responses I can give, none of which are entirely satisfactory, but it'll take you some way, I think. I'll only pick out a couple of responses at this stage. First observation is, while I accept it as, a, as an issue, it's not a knockdown commercial argument. If you said to the average chief executive of a bank, Bank's a bad example, uh, of a chief executive of a, of a major corporation. Here's the choice. 
the fees are five million or two and a half million. Um, but if they're two and a half million, that causes the law firm a training problem. Chief executives are not interested in, they'll just say the legal profession has to get its act together. And that's what we have to do. And now there's a number of answers to the, the so what I'm saying is it's not going to stop these phenomena. Multi-sourcing is going to happen in my view, uh, whether or not uh, that argument is cogent. I think it is cogent, but I think uh, it, it's pressing ahead. The commercial imperatives are too strong. If you're in a big business and you've got to reduce your expenses by 30%, you're outsourcing, you're offshoring, you're subcontracting. So my big question is, how is the legal profession responding? Uh, how is the academic community responding? Because we're in the business of legal education. Who's doing anything about this? And as usual, the answer is, I'm afraid no one's really thinking about it. A um, couple of... I mean, my most extreme response is about e-learning, and I'll come back to it. First of all, what I want to say is that actually, um, when the model shrinks, so the triangle shrinks, there'll be less people to train. Uh, uh, and uh, so the training burden will be smaller. That's point number one. Point number two is that it's a little bit like uh, arithmetic and children at school. I think all parents would say, although in the future you'll use a calculator, we want you to learn how to do arithmetic. And all lawyers would say, for the kind of reasons you're saying, although in the future you might use automatic document assembly, we want you to be able to draft in the first instance. Um, so you have to learn to do that. The big question is this, who pays for lawyers training just now in law firms? And you know the answer to that is the clients pay. Uh, in, in part, there's a problem. We, the, the war for talent has meant we pay. I'm afraid this is not going to be good for you guys, for, for young lawyers here. But because of the war for talent, we pay vast salaries with all the will in the world to junior lawyers who cannot possibly deliver that amount of value. And so what law firms do is to try and recover the costs is they charge them out at quite high rates and do quite routine and repetitive work. And the, uh, the point you're making is how, how do you become an expert you, unless you've got the routine work to cut your your teeth on. So just now what happens is the clients are actually paying for that training. And I'm saying that's probably going to stop. Because I think you do need to have that experience, you do need to have that exposure. Talking to junior lawyers though, another argument, they do say to me, it's right, we do need to cut our teeth in routine and repetitive work. That means doing it two or three times, not doing it two or three hundred times. So we couldn't, as I often say, you shouldn't confuse training with exploitation. The business model just now is getting the junior lawyers to churn out that work. Once you've done one document review or one due diligence, you're set maybe one or two, but we should not fool ourselves to thinking this is all about training. This is about a business model. And what's going to happen is the business model is going to change. It's going to look like this, that actually you might need to be doing that work at your own expense within a law firm. You outsource it to India, for example, just being one example, you might be doing it in parallel to learn the trade, and perhaps there's one way of checking. You will have to do that work in some way, but you won't need to do it nearly as many times to learn your craft. So I think they're always right. But my biggest observation is really about e-learning, and I don't know if any of you are familiar here with the um, work of my friend and colleague in Strathclyde, uh, Paul Maharg, who's written a great book called Transforming Legal Education. But um, the kinds of ways that he's developed of training young lawyers through e-learning techniques, I think, just raises so many exciting opportunities. So just to give you a flavor, he runs the Diploma in Legal Practice, which I did, as was mentioned, 82, 83. That's when you're, you've done your law degree and you want to be a practicing lawyer, you've got to do, so practitioners come in and teach you. It was the worst year of my life and it's generally agreed to be terrible. Uh, it, with all the will of the world, often uh, I mean, uh, practitioners aren't well trained to tutor and all the rest of it. Anyway, Paul came up with this idea of, he divided the whole year into teams of four, virtual law firms. So you put four students together as virtual law firms and you have to work together 
you're not graded separately, you're graded as a firm. You can allocate the work any way you want, you're working as a firm because that's what happens in the real world. And what you do is you practice law in Art Kalach. And Art Kalach is a bit like Second Life, but it's a, it's, an, it's a fictional online town that he's created. He's written a history of it, and it has, it, it has a industry, agriculture, police, courts, everything you can imagine. And you get your work from people in our colour, clients in our colour, who send you messages. So your tutors do that. Uh, you appear before judges online. It's your tutors doing that. It's a virtual learning environment. And he told the story when I was up quite recently about a dispute the two firms were having, acting for their clients. And um, as I remember it, uh, what happened was that they were due to appear online before the judge one day. And the day before, one of the firms, the four students, uh, lodged this huge document changing all the rules of the game. And the other four guys went mad, and they were up to the professor complaining, shouting, and screaming. The point he made was these people were not concerned of what grade they were going to get. They were engaged in a way that you never normally see law students engaged in the diploma in legal practice. What we are seeing, and it remembers early days, you've, I've just done a formal review, it's a published review of a five year review of the e learning at the College of Law. The techniques that are out there for actually training and learning uh, are very, very sophisticated. And they're not getting any worse. So if you combine all of these things together, I think we can creep towards a solution. Say again, it's, it's a, you know, I, I've addressed this argument for years. It's an important argument. It's not a commercial knockdown argument. We have to find an answer to it. We have to resolve it. It won't dissolve. Okay, I think we only have time for two last questions. So it was the gentleman in the end of the third row there and the lady there in the blue, if we take these. Yes, hi. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Jose. I'm an LLM student and a former uh, junior lawyer. Uh, your last... Um, you saw the light. I'm sorry? You saw that. I'm just joking. <laughs> Unfortunately <laughs> not. I'm sorry. Um, who knows? Um, your last uh, answer momentarily prompted me to change my initial question, but I think I might be able to uh, rehash it all together. Um, it seems that uh, even though the disclaimer that you gave for the title of your book, um, seems to be a misnomer in, in, in any event, because uh, I think that the book might be actually the end of uh, law firms. And if I were to be more precise, it would be big law firms. Um, in that sense, um, it seems that the clients that you are mentioning, and uh, from the book, the, the, the type of clients that you've been counseling in, the, in that sense, they're buying into that product. I mean, they, they go to these big law firms precisely because they're buying into that product and uh, they're looking for that standardization that these people have attained through their knowledge. And I think there's, there's a finite line between the knowledge and the information. And, and it kind of gets, it gets blurred, blurred somewhere along the way. So the sense is, uh, at the end of the day, are your, are your clients looking for a re reconfiguration of building practices? And I think I've seen that uh, during the credit crunch. I mean, they, they've, they've, they've moved toward fixed fees. They've, they've looked towards breaking uh, down overhead costs. And uh, they have looked towards excluding first or second year associates and only employing third year associates uh, onwards. So I, none of those uh, measures seem to be uh, hoarded towards technology, just market practices and reconfiguration of, the, of ethical building practices. And it seems that then it technically might not then play such a seminal role. Okay, I'm not quite sure I understand all the points, but first of all, the title of the book is slightly lighthearted. Uh, you were doing well until you said the end of law firms, which actually would, would, would have been a better title, more accurate. Uh, it is all law firms. What I say applies, uh, I think, my, my worries about the profession uh, um, are far more the smaller law firms. There's no doubt over the next 10 years, unless high street solicitors 
change radically, they'll simply go out of business. I am in no doubt about that. So um, it's not just the end of big law firms, absolutely not. Uh, the other thing is when, when you're, when you're uh, I'm not an academic purist, when you're uh, writing a book, you wanted to sell lots of copies. End of Lawyers was generally thought to be, question marks, generally thought to be quite a good title. <laughs> and so it has proven to be quite successful. So I, I, uh, I take your point. It's, uh, it, it could have been a more accurate title, but perhaps not a more effective title. Um, what, what, you didn't actually ask a question, I don't think. You're just gonna, so what's your, what's your precise question, uh, Arasi? I, mean, I can answer the billing thing if you want. Do you want to uh, talk about that for a second, because I know a lot about that. Uh, so, but, uh, let, okay, let me, let me have a go. Um, the, most law firms have responded to the recession by trying to rev revise their billing practices. They've moved from early billing to fixed fees. They've moved to uh, caps. They've moved to all sorts of volume discounts, a whole bundle of things. They say the answer is to bill differently. Um, research in the States suggests that messing about with fees will give you a net reduction, when all said and done, of about 10% of the legal cost of the client. In this environment, 10% is not enough. So what I always say, it's not about pricing differently, it's about working differently. Because um, so what law firms have wanted to do is keep the old business model, but just play about with the fees, and when the economy returns, go back to business as usual. Um, now let's talk about that for a second, because I think it's maybe implicit in what you were saying. Um, I don't believe, well, the economy I'm sure will return, but I don't believe when the economy returns, law firms will simply be able to go back to the old tariff. What the, the, the genie is out the bottle, as it were. Boards, chief executives, chief finance officers, shareholders have now seen that legal fees can be reduced by up to 30 or 40% by working differently. Why on earth would they ever want to go back to the old model? And they won't. I would say the general view, even amongst um, fairly cynical uh, lawyers and experienced city lawyers, is I would say about eight out of ten thinks there's no way back. And that's not back to old billing practices. It's new working practices. So don't get too hung up about technology. My, whole, my main thesis, I get hung up about technology, but... Um, you don't need to accept the technology bit of what I've got to say to accept the more general premises. We have to, for routine and repetitive ways, find different ways of sourcing that work. And I didn't go through them in detail, but there's at least 12. And the joy of that argument is when, when, when someone uh, has the argument against outsourcing, I just bring another one out. You can't knock all 12 down, I find. I mean, it, 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 once you're knocking more than five or six down, it's not about the sourcing, it's about something else. And what that something else is, I don't want to change the way I work. And the markets... I think inclining in a new direction. But let me say again, this is not going to happen over the next 18 months. We're going to see this transformation over the, the next decade. But I think it's dangerous for anyone to think you can put the toothpaste back in the tube. Okay, because I promised the lady in blue, this is the last question. Can you make it short? I'll make my answer short as well. Okay, good in, evening. In um, my name is Rula Palo. Uh, my educational background is in comparative industrial relations. I'm not uh, a lawyer. I don't have a legal background. Um, you started this lecture this evening uh, talking about simplicity. Uh, I have a very simple question for you this evening in relation to, your, to the type of services you spoke about, such as bespoke, standardized, systematized, packaged to commoditized. Yes. Uh, my question is, um, my simple question is, what is the interaction between the Legal Services Act 2007 and your proposed services, starting from the bespoke and up to commoditized? In other words, what influences what? 
I think it, I don't think it, I don't think it's unidirectional. I think it's going to be complex and iterative. That's not a simple question. It's a great question. My view is that, uh, and I've touched on the Legal Services Act and the liberalisation of the profession. My view is that the Legal Services Act will accelerate the movement from left to right. I did want to say, and I maybe didn't make this clear, that the movement from left to right was a, was already a market demand or a market pool from left to right about three or four years ago, even before the economy fell off a cliff. That was the way the market was going. The economy's accelerated it, and you're going to see the terrible state of the economy, you're going to see the Legal Services Act is going to uh, accelerate it even more. Because here's the point. Whether it's banks, private equity, uh, or other forms of external investors, I've not met any of these individuals who find the bespoke model an attractive business model to invest in. The investment, the new business models are going to be in standardizing, systematizing, and packaging. And so you're going to see, it seems to me, again, uh, uh, yet another reason to move from left to right, because law firms are going to have to compete with new businesses that are actually delivering services in a non-bespoke way. It's a great question. I could answer that at, at great length, but that's the short answer. It's going to accelerate Thank you. from left to right. Okay, and I think that just draws the evening to a close. All that remains is to thank our speaker in the usual forms. Okay.